All of us at some point of our lives deal with overeating. And unfortunately, that is the hard truth. We can't escape from it. All of us at least once experienced this, but for some, it's actually an everyday reality. But many people see it as a problem, when in reality, it is a sign of a problem, not a problem itself. And of course, there are physiological reasons for this, such as sleep deprivation, hormonal imbalances, excessive workouts, and so many others. But from my experience of working with more than 50 clients as an integrative health coach and nutritionist, I can assure you that emotional underlying is a much more common reason for us overeating. Hi, I'm Marina. I'm a health coach and this is The Why Matters, where I share with you my findings about well-being concerns which many of us face, such as overeating, stress, insomnia, gut problems, emotional burnout, lack of energy, you name it. Well, most of us can name it and are trying to fight it. In other words, we know what we're facing and are looking for how to fix it. But we are completely neglecting the why. Why we got here in the first place is the most crucial question we have to ask ourselves to find an effective way out which we all want and rightfully deserve. Your why truly matters, and that is why we're here. We often turn to food and search of comfort or distraction, and it is only natural, it is not a surprise. Food makes us feel good, food gives us comfort, food associates with safety and peace, and we often turn to pasta when we feel sad or try to feel the hole inside of us caused by loneliness or disappointment by ice cream. But another hard truth that I have to break to you, that no amount of pasta or no amount of ice cream will ever make you feel full if you are eating for emotional reasons and not for physical reasons. If you are eating out of emotional hunger and not out of physical hunger. Overeating for emotional reasons itself is not a problem. The problem is that it is a sign of you trying to escape the emotions, trying to take the shortcut, but it doesn't work. Food can only provide you with a temporary solution, not with a long-term one. And it is much easier to eat that piece of cake than to deal with hard truths uh, that often require even harder actions. I understand, it is easier. But these actions, and by doing so, you are disconnecting from your true self, from your inner voice, and prevent yourself from living a much happier and a much more fulfilling life. And this is a problem, not overeating itself. And all of this is also reinforced by the diet culture that we all grew up in and are still surrounded by. Women often see their worth as a person equaling to how their body looks. We might often tell ourselves that if I am thin, if I am size extra small, then I am good and I am lovable. And this only reinforces our overeating. And we often label food as good or bad and whenever we feel something bad, we feel shame. And shame is another driver of overeating. And we might think that if I already broke my diet, then I might as well have a whole box of cookies. And the question you have to ask yourself is, why is one cookie not enough? Why do I crave a whole box? And this is what our episode today is about. 
And I'm so excited. And excitement is not even the right word. I'm so proud, incredibly proud to introduce today's guest. Because this is someone who I look up to as a professional and as a woman, someone who has been my inspiration all this time and one of the reasons that I actually chose this profession and someone who inspired me to choose this path of helping others become the better versions of themselves and having a happier and higher quality of life. Janine Robb's many books were among the first ones to actually link our relationship with food with deeply personal and spiritual issues that go far beyond dieting, body image and weight. Janine bases her work on the idea that how we do one thing is how we do everything and hence how we eat is also how we live. And our relationship with food becomes a perfect doorway to healing our limiting thoughts, negative feelings and long-held beliefs about being alive. The world is really on our plate, it is not our metaphor and it just actually makes us lucky. Janine Roth is the author of 10 books, including her newest one, This Messy Magnificent Life and the New York Times bestseller, Women, Food and God, When Food is Love, and my personal favorite one, Feeding a Hungry Heart. And I sincerely hope that today's conversation will provide you with long-awaited questions to your answers about emotional eating, about overcoming emotional eating, about how to deal with your emotions, about how to face the hard truths and how to use emotional eating as a chance to make your life better and a happier one. And um, yeah, let's welcome our guest. Just before we start anything, I want to say how grateful I am for you agreeing to have this conversation with me, because one of the reasons that I decided to go into health coaching and specialize in emotional side of this aspect, and your books, especially Feeding the Hungry Heart, helped me so much in the very beginning of my journey, because this is something that unfortunately many of us deal with, and I'm not an exception. So I think it is very important to define what is emotional eating itself and how is it different from eating disorders. Because I remember even for myself, it was very often to sometimes hard distinguishing between these two terms. Well, I actually don't use the word eating disorder. I don't think it helps very much. I think people know, each of us knows, if we're challenged by our relationship to food, our bodies, and nourishment. I think that's enough without having to label it a disorder. I really, really love this approach because I've, I also personally find that whenever you are labeled with a disorder, it also makes you feel even worse and it doesn't help you overcome and be issues that you might have or the problems that you might be facing or the difficulties that you're going through. And uh, you were one of the pioneers behind lining food with much deeper rooted personal and spiritual issues. And you were the first one to kind of link our eating behavior with our personal lives and everything else that happens to it. So how did you come to forming this link? 
Well, you know, I read the book Fat is a Feminist Issue uh, by Susie Orbach, and that really helped me see that what I was doing with food was not isolated and insane, but really a way to express what I didn't know how to express any other way. So that really set me on my course. And from there, I did a course called Thin Within that also really helped. And then I just started looking at what were my own issues and really delving into them and writing about them because I was already a writer. Well, I mean, this is something that we all, not all, but many of us deal at some point in our lives. And this is something that I've also dealt with. And um, I think that it's particularly important to talk about the issues that, you know, we've experienced ourselves because it provides a much more personal outlook on the problem and not just a purely professional and factual standpoint. Because when this is something that you have experienced yourself, you can be more empathetic, you can be more understanding, and uh, you can actually feel what other people are going through. And I think that the often problem is that whenever someone is dealing with emotional overeating, they think that they're alone in all of this. Because, you know, overreaching and especially indulging in all this chocolates and pizzas and muffins and all the delicious foods is sometimes seen as shameful. And something that is shameful is something that we don't really want to share with other people very often because we are afraid that we will be looked down upon. So I think it is very important for everyone to understand that they're not alone and that there are many people who are dealing with this because I personally see emotional eating. I'm not sure about using this word, but I will still say it's something rather natural because food associates of comfort and it sometimes does give us comfort and food gives us joy and food gives us pleasure and um, food makes us feel safe and at peace. So if food does make us feel good, then is emotional eating a problem or when does it become one? Well, food is there for nourishment, to nourish your body and of course to get pleasure from. Uh, and food is wonderful when you're hungry and when your body needs food. If you're eating for entertainment, if you're eating to soothe something that feels agitated, if you're eating to calm yourself down, if you're eating because you're bored, sad, lonely, angry, food is not gonna do what you want it to do. It might do for a minute, But there's a much more direct way to be with yourself than to use food as a go-between. So although food can and often is pleasurable, if you're using it when you're not hungry, it turns from pleasurable in the moment to painful very quickly. I remember when um, a couple of years ago, I didn't have um, the best romantic relationship in the sense that it wasn't very 
serving my values or my aspirations. Um, my favorite one was um, a Rocky Road ice cream. And I've noticed that no amount of ice cream that I ate never made me full. I was eating and eating, but I still felt hungry and I still felt that hole on the inside. So I think just like you are saying, if we're using the food for the wrong reasons, it will never give us this sense of nourishment that we are truly desiring, that we truly need and that we truly want. And um, how do we understand that this is not the ice cream? that we want, but this is actually something more and something deeper rooted. Well, you actually already knew that before you started eating the ice cream. You knew that this relationship you were in, or perhaps not in at that moment, was not, it, it didn't meet you where you needed to be met. And so you already knew that. And that's what is true for a lot of people. We know that, but we don't know what to do about that. Don't really believe there is anything to do. So we turn to food for immediate comfort. But the thing about food is you can't get enough of what you don't really want. And it wasn't the Rocky Road ice cream that you wanted, as good as it was. It was meeting yourself where you needed to be met, where it was painful or lonely or sad or, or whatever you were feeling. That didn't answer the reason you were eating. And because of that, the Rocky Road ice cream could never have done it. Because what you needed was not in that ice cream. I wish it was at the bottom of the ice cream tub, but one tub after another, I realized, no, it wasn't in the ice cream. It wasn't listed as one of the ingredients on the label very much, unfortunately. I wish it was that easy. But you know, sometimes it is much easier to eat ice cream or anything else than to deal with all the issues you are dealing with and like everyday life offers a lot of stress and especially when something is truly not working for us and like you said food becomes an immediate sense of comfort but doesn't provide the long-term one so how to kind of change our behavior pattern how to go from seeing food as the solution or seeing food even, let's say, as a temporarily comfort and how to actually make this step into changing something in our lives because change can sometimes be very scary, the unknown is scary and making the hard choices is also scary. The thing is, you're not really trying to choose between something delicious that's working and something scary. Ice cream doesn't work. It's painful to eat one tub after another of ice cream. It's, you know, it's a myth to say, well, that was really good and this is really hard. And so ice cream is good and easy and being with myself is really hard. That's not true. Eating ice cream might be good for 30 seconds 
might be good even for two minutes. But then it's, first of all, you get full. You might get cold. You get more full. And then you're still left with why you started eating the ice cream to begin with, which you have now doubled your pain. You start in pain. You overeat. Your stomach hurts. You start beating yourself up for what you did. And now you're in double or triple the amount of pain that you were when you started eating. So it's not like it made anything better except for maybe three minutes. And then you spend the next hours full, nauseated, judging yourself, maybe even ashamed of yourself, uh, feeling hopeless or desperate or even more lonely because what has really happened in that turn to food is that you've abandoned yourself. You've self-abandoned. You left yourself for another lover, so to speak, and that other lover is Rocky Road ice cream. And it turns out that Rocky Road ice cream isn't such a good lover. First of all, it melts. <laughs> Second of all, it doesn't meet you where you are. It doesn't satisfy what you need. It doesn't feed your hungry heart, so to speak. It doesn't touch your heart. It just shoves things at it. And what we really want at any given time is to be seen, is to be met, is to be cherished, is to be welcomed, is to be been with. So, you know, if I'm feeling lonely or sad and I turn to ice cream, that's not what my heart wants or needs. I might do that because it's instantly accessible. What I really want in that moment is someone, and it needs to be me, because you are the one you've been waiting for, not Rocky Road, not a failed relationship, not even a best friend. You, to turn to yourself and say, oh, sweetheart, tell me all about it. What do you need? What do you want to welcome you the way you really want to be welcomed, to be cherished just for who you are. So if you want to break free from the habit of using food as a coping mechanism rather than as a source of nourishment and joy, then the first step that you have to take is to simply understand that it is not working, that it is causing you more pain and that just to choose yourself and learn how to be kinder to yourself and learn how to truly love yourself. And um, I think in one of your books, you've also mentioned that sometimes that we have to look at ourselves as at a child and that sometimes, you know, children are crying, but mothers don't start liking or loving them less. Of course, not a single mother wants them, their child to cry. But the fact that the child is cry crying doesn't make them stop loving them. And that is also the way we should truly treat ourselves, especially when we are hurting. Just give ourselves more love, more empathy, and just 
be there for ourselves, like you said. And Rocky Road is indeed a terrible lover, because apart from anything else, he also has an expiration date. <laughs> that's right. And that's not something that we want. And the relationship that we have with ourselves doesn't have an expiration date. This is the most important relationship in our life, because this is the one that we have from day one and until, I would say, day zero. So learning how to establish this relationship, like you said, is extremely important and learning to be kind to yourself. But there are certain things, there are some intermediate steps in terms of food and eating You know, I have a set of seven eating guidelines that people can follow. Eat when you're hungry, eat sitting down in a calm environment. This doesn't include the car. Eat without distractions. Distractions mean Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, any kind of news or television or thing that's going to take your attention out there. Stop when your body has had, eat what your body wants, not your mind. Stop when your body has had enough and eat with the intention of being in full view of other people, meaning not sneaking. First of all, they are themselves what people who are natural eaters do. They eat when they're hungry. They eat sitting down. They eat with gusto, enjoyment, and pleasure. They eat until their bodies have had enough. When you want to eat and you're not hungry, when you're not sitting down, when you're just grabbing, then that's a red flag. Oh, I'm using food for something else. And that's the time to say, what is it? What do I really, really need? I love using these indicators myself. And I've also applied your seven guidelines rules when working with clients. And I've noticed that Eating when sitting down and eating without distractions are actually the most interesting ones in terms of how useful they are and what a change they can make. Because, you know, we all have busy lives and sometimes we eat on the go and we don't even notice that we're eating something. And I also think that when we're not tuning into the process of eating, when we're not being mindful about it, when we're eating on the go when we're scrolling through Instagram or watching series or anything else that we're kind of stealing the joy the food can actually give us. We're kind of stealing it and we're robbing ourselves and we definitely shouldn't be doing. And if you do apply these seven steps, then food can even become like a small meditation moment in the middle of the busiest day. It can be become a moment of relaxation, of joy, of pleasure, and it is just feels so good to have them. And um, you've mentioned the natural eaters. And I was always wondering, the natural eaters, are there some kind of special kind of people? Is this the super talent that you are born with? Or are these just the people that somehow manage to escape the diet culture that draws us away from being natural eaters? Who are they? <laughs> well, usually they're not women because of the objectification of women. 
in our culture. But also, I think what's even more striking is that they've grown up with food not being an issue in their families. And I think those that nervous system got inscribed with food isn't a big challenge. My body size is not who I am. And so I think more important really than knowing who the natural leaders are is to know it, that food is a challenge for you. And if it is a challenge for you, to use it as a blessing in your life. Because those natural leaders have other challenges. We have the relationship with food. And as I said very often, how you eat is how you live. And so your relationship with food can open up to you your relationship to everything else. Your relationship to pleasure, to joy, to deprivation, to having enough to what you feel about what your value is, your worth is in your life. The fabulous thing about food is that every single day you have the opportunity to choose food that nourishes you. And if you don't, to ask yourself what's going on. Often I'll say to people that I work with in my retreats, because I do teach retreats twice a year, six-day retreats, for people all over the world, they're wonderful Zoom retreats, and we eat together every day, every day. We have an eating meditation. And I'll often say to people, who chose the food on your plate? Was it a two-year-old? Was it a five-year-old? Was it a 15-year-old? Who chose the food? And some people will say, well, it was the eight-year-old who was telling my mother to go to hell because she told me I couldn't eat X, Y, and Z, and now I'm gonna show her. Now she's 50 years old or 25 years old. Her mother is no longer around. And yet that eight-year-old is still in relationship to this phantom mother and eating according to what that mother said she could and couldn't do. But that gives you an immediate access into, oh, uh, it's the eight-year-old that's doing all this eating. Let me see what that eight-year-old has to say to me that isn't in the language of food. And so that gives us a fabulous doorway or portal into the other challenges in our lives. I, I think the relationship with food when it's challenged is, is a I, it's difficult, yes, and for many people it's very painful, but it's also a great blessing because it is what I call an outpicturing of your relationship to yourself and to your entire life, and that's what I call a great blessing. I think this is such a beautiful and great perspective to look at it because very often people see emotional eating as a problem or something to be ashamed of or something to be afraid of when instead, like you said, it actually is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to see that there is something that you can change in your life to live it Happy, happily to have a better quality of life and to deal with maybe some limiting beliefs or some negative thoughts that have been stopping you or preventing you of becoming your best, happiest self. 
and it is a great way to use it to have an inside look onto what is happening with a little child that is sitting in all of us. Another thing that I think people often get wrong about emotional eating is that it's association with willpower and self-control. They think that if they're emotionally overeating, if they can't stick to the chosen diet and if they choose the foods that they label as bad, then they are weak, then they are not strong enough, that they are not good enough. But in reality, when I work with my clients, some of them are extremely successful at their careers and they have it all. They have a family, they have a career, they have hobbies, they travel. And I doubt they would have been able to achieve all of that if they were actually not well-powered or if they were not strong. So I think that another myth that needs to kind of be unveiled is that emotional eating has nothing to do with willpower. Well, if you're eating to satisfy the needs of a four-year-old, four-year-olds don't have willpower. Eight-year-olds don't have willpower. It's not about force, deprivation, guilt, fear, or punishment. It's never about that because that's just one side of the stick. Or for what I say is that for every diet, there's an equal and opposite binge. That's the fourth law of the universe. You, you flip, if you press down on yourself, if you make yourself do something, if you force yourself to do something, sooner or later, you'll flip to the other side and you'll break out of it. So it's not about that. It is about what I call presence and awareness and really, really being aware of what it is that makes you happy. And you'll find that there is something that can align with, really stack up with. It's not about willpower. It's about what feels good in this body. Now, I might like sugar. I do love sugar. I grew I up on sugar. I love sugar as well. Such a sweet tooth. <laughs> yes, but I know that it doesn't make me feel good. So I don't eat it. Often we eat for associations of particular foods. I grew up eating coffee ice cream, or I grew up eating Oreo cookies, or I grew up this, and eating them brings back the association, the associations or the memories. But they're not about being in the present moment. They're not about what does this body need now? Now, I came through breast cancer a couple of years ago, and my oncologist and all the doctors said to me, do not eat sugar anymore cancer feeds on sugar. Now, I hadn't been eating sugar for a couple of years, but if I had been eating sugar, I would have stopped eating sugar right then because which was cancer, sugar, cancer, sugar. I'm, I'm certainly not going to choose sugar. And so that was not about willpower. That was about what is my deeper desire here? Is it to satisfy mouth hunger in the moment? Because the thing about sugar, as much as I really like it, it's not filling, it's momentary. 
there's a momentary bliss of it and then it's gone, but it doesn't nourish you. It And there's nothing wrong with having an instant hit of pleasure, except when you're told that cancer feeds on it. And so very quickly you get to see, or I got to see, even though I hadn't been eating sugar for a while, what are my priorities here? And that was not about willpower. That was just simply about what is my deepest intention, desire, longing, and aligning with that. And that's often what this takes. Just being truthful to yourself, being authentic. What do you really want? It's very interesting that you mentioned it because I find myself very often in the same position as you are. I have a sweet tooth for sure. I, I'm not drawn to fast food, luckily, and I'm not drawn to burgers. I'm not drawn to french fries. I'm not interested in crisps, but chocolate or ice cream or a warm chocolate fondant is something that I truly and really enjoy. But just like you said yourself, it is not in my regular eating regime. It is not part of my everyday eating routine just because I've noticed that it doesn't make me feel good, that I have dips of energy and that then I feel sleepy and there are so many things that I want achieved every day and that is what I truly want. But I think that especially because of the diet culture and especially because of all the kind of food demonization that is out there, sometimes it is very hard to maintain this balance or it is very easy to cross the line between not eating something just because you feel better for not eating it and not eating something for instance sugar or french fries or burger because it makes you feel like almost a bad person. You know, many people almost even draw a line between if I eat healthy, if I eat my vegetables, I'm good, I'm lovable, I deserve love. And if I eat a muffin or a chocolate or a pizza, then it automatically makes me a bad person and I don't deserve love. So how to maintain this balance between eating for nourishment and choosing food for nourishment and not labeling something as good and bad. Well, Arena, that really gets into a bigger issue, which is about how you speak to yourself in general and if you criticize yourself and what you truly, truly believe about yourself. So many, many, many people, when you sort of... Um, take away the top 20 layers of I'm great, I'm successful, I'm this, I'm that, have these beliefs about themselves. I'm not enough. I'm bad. I'm worthless. I don't have value. I am a failure. There's a, a list of core beliefs that many of us have about ourselves that we often don't touch and question. So if you really deep down believe that you're worthless, then when you eat a muffin and you feel like you're not supposed to, in kicks that voice, you're worthless. Look what you just did. 
So that belief has been there the whole time. It, the muffin hasn't created it. It's just catalyzed it. It's evoked it. It brings it up. And that's not a bad thing for it to be brought up because then you get to look at it and you get to see, okay, I really believe that I'm not enough. And then you, you question that. Is that true? Where did I get that belief? Who told me that? And to really, really realize that I have that, it comes up and it's my job to really look at it and question it because it was never true. It's a lie. But until you believe it's a lie, you're going to fall into that heap or pile of lack of self-worth. And it does bring us back to, like you always say, that the way we eat is how we live. And if a muffin provokes those feelings, it's not the muffin, it's that those feelings were there in the first place. And you kind of have to deal with those beliefs about yourself first, not with the muffin itself. You have to be very kind to yourself there, but, but at the same time, tell the truth. So we talk like about the intermediate and intermediary steps about the seven principles of, I would say, mindful eating. And what is the middle step in this case? Like, let's say I eat a muffin and I have these voices in my head that, okay, right now, like... I broke my rules, I'm eating something that is high in sugar, sugar is bad for me, I'm worthless, and I identified that I have these voices and then I have to work with my beliefs, but working with my beliefs about myself takes time. So is there anything in between step that we can do? I really want to keep pointing out that eating compulsively and feeling miserable about yourself takes time too. It's not just a, that telling the truth takes time. Think of the time you have spent thinking about food, buying food, eating food, feeling bad about yourself for having just eaten food, making up a new plan so that you won't eat that food again. That takes time. We have this belief that telling the truth or being kind to myself or questioning the belief that I'm worthless takes time. But, and is there a shortcut? Well, it depends on you and how you want to live. Yes, there's a shortcut. And the shortcut is that's not true. But are you going to believe that? I mean, you know, that's the question. You know, I used to teach people a process, and I wrote this in Women, Food, and God, one of my books, uh, the process of defending from the inner critic, your superego, the voice of shame, the inner judge, the inner parent, which is unqualifiedly mean. And so it is just looking for a little crack to come in and say to you, oh, You did it again. I knew it. You're a failure. You're bad. How could you even think for a second that you were worth anything? And I call that voice 
the GPS from the Twilight Zone. I don't know if you know what the Twilight Zone is, but it it was a science fiction horror TV show when I was growing up. And this voice is a horror voice, basically. It doesn't speak the truth and it tries to smash you down. And so to be aware that that voice has come in and be able to say to that voice, yeah, there you are again. And you're not going to get me this time. So that's a practice. You could do that practice if you wanted to. And I recommend that practice. It's just that if you really believe it, at some point, you're going to need to question that belief. I think that I had to question some of my beliefs at some point. But, and yes, it took time. But like you said, I spent much more time obsessing about food before that. And I'm so grateful that I did spend all the time on working on myself and on working on all the beliefs and all the voices that I had inside my head because right now I feel so much better and I'm so grateful to myself that I've done this work and that I spent time doing that because it is an insanely good feeling to be free from all these voices and I think that that is definitely worth all the work and I wanted to ask about something that you've mentioned earlier today you said that natural eaters um The second point about them was that they usually come from families where food was not an issue, where food was just a normal occasion. And basically, my question is, what are the families where food is not an issue? And how do you become one? Like to all the parents that are listening or to all the people who are planning to become parents, how do we create the food where a family where food is not an issue so that the children and the future generations are better in some ways than we ourselves are? By working on your own issues. That's the only way. I think there is a great saying that you shouldn't try to change your child because the child will always be just like you yourself are. So instead, you should work on changing yourself first. So if I work or anyone who is listening works on their issues and their beliefs about themselves, then it is basically a higher guarantee that this will also provide this family environment for children to kind of not having to work on their beliefs when they're adults and it will provide this good solid foundation well that's what i believe and that's what the parents i know do it's sort of like we're living radios we transmit where we are how we are how we feel about ourselves you know that somebody walking into a room when they're in a bad mood It's like a black cloud descends. You know immediately, oh, I'm not going to go near that person because it it rubs off immediately. And that's how it is about our relationships with food. If you judge yourself or are unkind to yourself, you know, are constantly telling yourself you're too fat, your daughter will pick that up even if you try really, really hard to not communicate that, who we are gets transmitted. That is very true. Even if we try very hard, it is 
the truth eventually will come out and it is much harder to try it than hide it than we think and another thing important issue that you raise in your work and in your books is the objectification of women in general and um, I was wondering if you have a piece of advice on how to start seeing your worth beyond your looks and how to start basing your confidence not just on how thin you are or what size of clothes you are wearing because that's what we've been told for many, many years. You know, I have been interested in all the years that I've been writing in two things. One is the relationship with food and one is the direct experience of what has never been touched by the relationship with food, by being told you're not good enough. You know, some people call it consciousness. Some people call it presence. Some people call it awareness. Some people call it awake aliveness. Some people call it God. Um, There is something, a presence in us, and we have felt it when we refer to ourselves. Let's see, you know, when you were two years old, you said I. When you were five years old, you said I. When you were 20 years old, you said I. There is something that has not changed, some kind of background, some kind of awareness, some kind of presence that you have recognized as yourself. Because certainly when you said I at two years old, and if you were looking at your body, you wouldn't have the same body right now that you had when you were two years old. So everything changes. Your thoughts change, your feelings change, your bodies change, your relationships change work changes, perceptions and sensations change, but something does not change. That's the reason why people meditate. That's the reason why people have a contemplative practice. So they can get in touch with what doesn't change and realize that beyond their physical shape, and what they look like and the size of their bodies, which points to the question you asked, there is something deeper, realer, and ever-present than that. And that is actually who you are because that's always been there. Those are That's what all the spiritual teachers say. That's what all the sages say, that, that we need to be awake to that in order to feel most at home. That's our true home. And when you realize that that you is not the size of your body, then there is some kind of relaxation that happens, some kind of uh, safety, really. That's the safest place because that's who you are. And what I recommend to my retreat students is that, for at least five minutes a day. That's not asking too much, five minutes a day. They contact, so they sit quietly, they close their eyes. Now their their, uh, minds might go crazy, but at some point they're just going to feel this sense of 
I am here. What's here? A kind of spaciousness and expansiveness. That's the whole reason to work on all this stuff about ourselves and our beliefs and I'm not enough and I'm a failure because when you really see through those beliefs, they dissolve. And what is there is this big open space like the sky. So those beliefs are like clouds just passing through, passing through, passing through. And then what's left when you see through them is the sky of yourself. And that is worth spending time on every day. I remember I was having an interesting conversation with one of my closest friends in summer. And uh, what you said just made me go back mentally to that one. Um, he asked me, what do I refer to as I? When I say I, as in like arena, what is arena? Is it like your body? Is it your bones? Is it the amount of nutrients when you have? Or is it something more? And I should tell you that I've been thinking about the answer to these questions ever since the last conversation we had, and I still can't perfectly formulate it, but I think that what you said right now makes me closer to answer what is I and what does it mean to myself. And it is a beautiful question to ask yourself, and I think everyone should really think about that, because once you've answered that, that question, there is no way that you will see yourself just as a body of a certain size, and there is no way that you will think that all you have to give to the world is the way you look, that it is yes, so much more. very important, what, because who you are is what's left when everything that can change is gone. So when your thoughts, when you don't have thoughts, when you don't have feelings, when you don't have sensations, when you don't have perceptions. You know, I remember reading years ago a Zen saying that anything you can lose in a fire isn't really yours to begin with. And it was like, whoa, that felt like a really big statement because in a fire, not only can you lose your house and all your possessions, but you could also lose your body. And so if you lose your body, what's left? And, you know, it's like I'm sitting in a room right now. Uh, there's furniture in this room. My desk is here. The bookshelves are there. Some lamps are here. But if I took out all the furniture in this room, what would be left would be space. The space in this room. And this it's just and we never focus on the space because we're always focused on an object, my body, uh, my desk, my relationship, my work. We're always putting our attention out there and we're not looking in here for what's really true, what the space itself is what's always here. And I think that that question of, well, who do you take yourself to be when everything that could leave you leaves you, which is pretty much everything uh, that we focused on, 
you'll find that sense of I am. I am this. And it is truly beautiful to discover and to have this moment of understanding that I am this. And this is definitely something that everyone should work on and experience and seriously consider looking into deep within themselves. They don't have to work on this because this is always there. So it's not like you have to find this. It's there all the time. It's like when you leave a movie theater, you've been watching the drama on the screen, but really you've been watching the screen the whole time. And so when the movie stops, the screen is left. The screen doesn't have to work on being itself. The screen is what's there when the movie ends. And so when all the parade of thoughts and feelings and sensations and perceptions end, what's there is the space that they all paraded through. And you don't have to work on that because it's always there. It is always there. You just have to discover it. <laughs> well, you have to, you have to be interested enough. You, it's, we're fascinated with objects. We're fascinated with out there. There's a great Sufi story about this. The It's a, a fool, the Sufi fool called Nasruddin. And he's outside looking for his keys. And he's looking under the lamppost. And he's looking on the sidewalk. And he's looking under another lamppost. And somebody comes in and says to him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my keys. And the guy says, but... Where did you lose your keys? And Nasruddin says, well, inside the house. And he's looking outside the house the whole time, only because he's used to looking outside the house. But it's not where he lost them. He lost them inside. And so for us, it's looking inside and all around. Instead of looking at all these objects and thinking we're going to find ourselves in work, in success, in achievements, in a thin body, in food. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with work. I love my work. I love writing. I like feeling really good in my body, but I know that that's not the end, the size of my body, because it's changed so many times. All of our bodies change throughout our life whether we want it or not whether we try to prevent it or not and that's partially what makes it beautiful because when you look in the mirror you can actually see how strong it is and how many it can tolerate and then you will have this sense of true gratitude towards it and true love and when you said that like your body is not it it also led me thinking about Another idea that I think you very often touch upon within several of your books, it's that people think that if they achieve a desired weight or if they achieve the desired look, then they will be happy, then they will be loved, then they will be successful. But our entire conversation today made me actually think that, like you said how we do one thing is how we do everything and how we eat is how we live but the opposite is also true how we live is how we eat and if we do everything that you've talked about today if we work on our beliefs 
if we learn on how to be kinder to ourselves, if we learn to truly understand what we need, and if we work on truly addressing to giving ourselves what we need, if we work on building a trusting relationships with, first of all, and foremost ourselves, if we work on discovering who am I, who is this being, what do I place in the eye, then our food behavior will also automatically change, right? That's true, but Arena, you make it sound like so much work. If we work on this, and 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 if I'm exhausted listening <laughs> to you, it's like yeah. Now you now you feel like you've had a nine to five. <laughs> no, forget that. That's not what this takes. I don't work on this and work on that and work on this and work on that and work on this. It's all part of the same thing. One of the reasons the relationship with food is so fabulous is that it contains every single belief we have about being alive. I'm not allowed to have this. Oh, I've taken too much of this. I don't really want this, but my mother said I couldn't have that, so I'm going to take it. If we just start with one thing and use our loving awareness to pay attention to that, it's what we pay attention to. What you pay attention to grows. So if you pay attention to how you're feeding yourself, to what you're feeding yourself, and what you believe about feeding yourself, the world opens up. And that is much more simple and beautiful. And beauty <laughs> is in simplicity indeed. And just before I let you go after such an insightful and beautiful conversation, I just have two more questions about yourself. And um, my first one is, if you could go back in time and tell yourself and give yourself one single piece of advice when you were experiencing the emotional eating episodes or when you wanted to give up and you thought that nothing is going to work and it's not worth it, what would this one piece of advice be? Well, first of all, I have to say I wouldn't go back because everything I did led me to here. So I don't regret one thing or one belief. They were like dominoes. That said, if somebody held a knife to my throat and said, you need to come up with a sentence to tell that, I, I would say, you are not a mistake, darling. And you've actually answered my second question already, because my second question was that if you could go back in time and tell yourself, would you actually go back? And, <laughs> and just like you said, you wouldn't. And when I look back at my own personal journey, sometimes it was hard, but just like you, I wouldn't have changed a single bit. I would have allowed myself to go through it just because I think it made me a much better person and a much kinder person, not only to myself, but to the society in general. So I think it doesn't make sense to have regrets and the journey is sometimes as important as their destination, even if we're talking about our journey with food. That's right. The process is the goal. The process is the goal, even if it is sometimes hard. And 
I just want to thank you for our conversation. I learned so much and you know after reading all the books and after reading all the articles it feels just amazing to me personally to talk to you or like face to face i can say thanks to the modern technologies and i know you had yourself like a very hard journey but i'm so grateful it sounds strange but i'm so grateful that you had it because it made the journey of millions of people around the world including myself so so much easier And I just want to thank you for that.